Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Beginning of December, NBA crawling before it runs to the playoffs. Christmas Day is that uh, major day for the NBA television-wise, and some say it's a bump in the road to the playoffs. Others say this is when the NBA really starts. Regardless, we're going to shift to a major player in the NBA, the L.A. market today. But Dan Calaruso, our digital editor of Reuters, what's your take of the NBA season so far? Look, I think the NBA season has been has had some positive surprises. I think it's had some unexpected negative surprises on the court. Um, but I think the big wagers that have been taken, you know, in the off seasons and uh, around the businesses of these things, I think you see the LeBron James bet in L.A., you know, starting to unfold. The Warriors continuing their journey as a super team. Uh, you know, other things emerging. You know, the uh, the youth movement in New York on both teams, that's both the Nets and the Knicks, trying to develop, like to rebuild from the bottom up. Uh, it's all kind of made for an interesting season so far, I think. Um, and you compound that with the strength the NBA had coming into this year, uh, especially vis-a-vis the NFL and, and, and other sports leagues. And I think the NBA is in a nice spot right now, a very nice spot. And I think the rest of the year is it's to lose, you know? Yeah, and my take is that we had a couple of game changers this year that are going to really going to – one not so positive, the other one very positive – uh, we're uh, jousting rhetorically as we get set for the collective bargaining negotiations. Um, the revenues are getting better every day, but we still have those conversations about when does the when do the players take their money? Do they expedite the TV money quickly or not? They wanted it as a normal increment, so we got a whole bunch of free agents who are making much more money than they probably should. But we're inching toward those deadlines, which is always a sign of unease. But on the good side, NBA does its deal with MGM and the gambling side of this. And if you remember, NHL set a model. NBA was the first one to do it. It's a data sale, but it's much more than the $50 million that Commissioner Silver did with the MGM folks. It's the NBA, as well as all the other leagues, are now coming to grips with the reality of gambling. And as we said, it's not too distant future when we're probably going to have the ability to wager at many of the arenas around the country blasphemous a few years ago, but not today. Yes, standard operating. I mean, it is a legit, it is on the brink of being a legit revenue line for the leagues, which is astonishing um, from for people your age and my age, Rick, that, that this is now, this is even more than logos on the jerseys, you know, co- corporate logos on the jerseys. To me, this is a, this is a bigger, a far bigger step, and it, it, it unleashes um, a lot of other factors. You see sports media companies emerging solely around gambling. You see a lot of the, the sports media companies that already exist in, on, the news fr- on the news front plugging in more gambling angles to their stories. Uh, and, and that whole uh, vein of, of revenue is now being mined by all the appropriate parties, and it happened overnight. And I, it probably doesn't feel like overnight to the people involved, but 
from the outside looking in, it feels like it happened overnight. And I think it's going to be an issue uh, that the league is going to have to contend with. Gambling and sports haven't always gone so well together. Um, so uh, it's going to be an interesting row uh, for the NBA to, to, to go through and yeah. see if they can get through it without much damage uh, Correct. in the long run. Correct. And, and, and this intrepid, whatever you call me, reporter, analyst, uh, freeloader, uh, I'm in Vegas for the winter baseball meetings. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I coincidentally ran into Jason Wu, who is one of the top executives at uh, at a, a esports uh, company, and he was doing a keynote uh, at uh, one of the esport c- conventions that's happening in in Vegas. And uh, interesting, we had a drink and talked about the future of esports, and a lot of the people are lumping the success uh, of esports with the uh, uh, ease of gambling in not too distant future. Every NBA team, for example, will own an esports team, and not only that, but you get to gamble on yourself uh, to win or not. It's a it's a strange new world. Um, but you know, back to the traditional world, we protect our big markets. Competition's important, especially New York, Chicago, L.A., where you have so many teams. And our interview is is quite special this week. It's a good friend, Gillian Zucker. She was the head of the Auto Club Speedway, a NASCAR the facility in Fontana from 2005 to 14. But more important than that, she was appointed as the chief executive president of uh, basketball operations for the Los Angeles Clippers in 2014 by Steve Ballmer. And she's been in that role for almost five years. A really interesting perspective. Here's Gillian Zucker. A person who I count as a good friend who has moved into a position of significant leadership in the NBA with the Los Angeles Clippers, Gillian Zucker, hired by the Clippers on November 6, 2014, and never looked back. She was at the Auto Club Speedway, ran that, and one of the foremost, you hate, you hate to say foremost women executives in sports, that's not an appropriate title. She's one of the foremost executives in sports. How does that sound? Thanks, Rick. I love that. <laughs> I don't know going. if I earned that title, but I, I love the way that you've said that. No qualifiers. You most certainly earned that title with no qualifiers. So it's been, and it is hard to believe, we talked about it off the air, almost eight, uh, almost four years since you left the Auto Club Speedway in Fontana and took this job on. And before we even start getting into branding and otherwise, has it been all you expected it to be? Any surprises? Happy with it? No, it has not been what I expected it to be. It has been so much more. It's um, it's really extraordinary to be a part of the NBA. I think especially during this moment in time, um, how exciting this league is, how collaborative it is, um, how focused it is on community and fans and innovation and technology and and what's next. And uh, it's it's really been a delight. And I would say that. Uh, coupled with the opportunity to work with, I think, one of the greatest business minds of our day, Steve Ballmer, has just been more than I could have imagined. Well, the brand has certainly evolved from the sale day, let's say, under Steve Ballmer's ownership and your stewardship. Where do you see the brand going? You know, it's a, it's a great question, and it's one that I think that after four years, we feel very confident in being able to answer. So, you know, when you look back at when Steve took over the team and I first started here, uh, you, you sort of have this dream that there's an ownership change and then blink, there's a brand change that goes along with it. But in today, today's society, it doesn't work that way. You really have to prove authentically that you are something different before you become that. And I think that's really what we've set out to do over the past four years is, is be out in the community and take the kind of actions on the court and off the court that define the type of team that we are today and that we will be for the future. 
Um, and with that has come a pretty exhaustive brand study to understand how fans not just here in the region think about us, but how they think about us nationally and how they think about us internationally, and really to maximize the opportunities that are there. Um, and we, I think, have been able to find a place that we feel very strongly matches with the community where we are, this idea that, that LA is this place of dreamers that, that people come to knowing that they've got an idea or something that they want to be or be a part of and that it's going to be really hard and really competitive, but they're going to get there anyway despite whatever odds they face. They're going to just keep working and working and working and find a way, and that's exactly what the Clippers are about. So I guess it's 11 million people. I'm not good on my sensei, but they got Rams, Chargers, LeBron, Olympics, World Cup, LAFC, on and on. Uh, how does the competition affect the Clippers' business strategy? Do you collaborate or do you consider these folks competitive? We're, we're all friends. In fact, the, the leaders of all 11 of the professional teams here uh, in LA, plus we've got the two major college programs, uh, as you mentioned, the Olympics. So there's so many things that are battling for people's attention and entertainment dollar. Um, but each of us are different, and uh, you know, this, this is a community that's actually grown, so we're talking about 17.5 million people in the DMA. That, that's enough for everybody to be successful, particularly since you know, we really do have different demos in a lot of ways and different seasons. So uh, we've all been able to really work together. Of course, uh, when it comes to the other NBA team in town, we're very competitive on the court. We don't want to lose there, but off the court, very collaborative. See, you added 6 million people from the beginning of that question when I only said there were 11. Uh, that's not bad. Uh, you know, the NBA, when you think about it, it's always being compared to the NFL as 1 and 1A, and now there are these articles which are fairly meaningless, but they talk about the NBA having the better business profile these days, better reputation. Uh, you're seeing the stance on embracing sports gambling and esports. What's your perspective on the health of the NBA business overall and specific trends as well? Well, I think the NBA is a very exciting time for the sport right now. Um, and credit for that you know, goes to David Stern, but especially to Adam Silver and, and really what he's done with his stewardship of the sport since he became commissioner. Um, and I think really where he's unique is in his perspective on how he thinks about the league, which is really looking at the world and what's changing globally, what's changing with behaviors of young people and how the sport is going to change with them. So constant innovation, constant thinking about you know, how are we going to be better tomorrow. And that aligns so closely with the Clippers brand and what we're about. I think it's part of why you know, we're so excited about having a place in the NBA and, and what's going on in the league right now. And obviously the examples of the front-running stance relative to the quagmire that was sports gambling now with the MGM deal sounds like you're all headed in the right direction. Is there a a long-term understanding of how the gambling revenue and process is going to play out? Uh, I'm not sure that anybody has a clear perspective on that yet. There's an evolution that's going on, and it's going to be one, I think, that takes place slowly. My, my guess is California will be one of the later adopters, given that it's going to require a legislation change in order to implement here. Yeah, and... and Obviously, it's going to evolve all over the country. It is important to note that the NBA has been out ahead and will continue to be out ahead in the right way. Let's talk philanthropy for a second. How important is 
is doing great by doing good, and how important is philanthropy in your day-to-day business beyond just traditional ROI? It's, it's a huge part of what we think about um, at the Clippers, and a lot of that is, is really because of, of Steve and Connie, who have been focused on how utilizing a sports uh, brand, you can extend the value and reach of whatever impact you're able to make in the community. And we've launched on some programs that I think are really quite unique to sports foundations, things that maybe are outside of the traditional wheelhouse. We have things that are, that are clearly uh, within our target area, but for example, uh, we started a program about three years ago where we uh, took five schools that were in one of the more disadvantaged areas of Los Angeles and we built a mobile van that we brought to the schools and we tested every child in these schools um, for, for vision issues. And what we found was that this extraordinary number of them in uh, first through third grade, about 30% of them had undiagnosed vision issues. And these are things that lead to misdiagnosis of ADHD or learning disadvantages. And, you know, if it just takes a pair of glasses to give a kid a chance, that's something that we wanted to make sure happened. So in addition to having the van there, we also had a choice of all kinds of different fashion lenses. We fit the kids right there in the van and then came back and brought them their new glasses. Um, And it was really quite an extraordinary program. I mean, being there myself with several of our players and handing out these glasses to many kids who didn't know that they couldn't see and then they put them on for the first time and the looks on their faces was something that, you know, is an emotion you just can't capture. Um, so we've been able to expand that program. First, we took it to the city of Englewood and just, uh, to check to see if we could scale it. Um, we went to uh, every child kindergarten through 12th grade and tested them all. Um, it's uh, about 12,000 kids in that school district. Um, then a year ago, we took it to Long Beach um, and finished that program there with about 80,000 kids. And then, um, you know, just this past season, we had announced that we're taking on the big kahuna, all 640,000 kids at LAUSD, and we'll be doing the same. So, you know, effectively solving the vision issue for youth in Los Angeles permanently, because after the first time they're tested, uh, we have a program that is in place that we've tapped through legislature and insurance that helps make sure that they keep their glasses up to date. What have you done for me lately? It's a huge program, and I guess one of the pressures that always befalls an executive is the tension between doing all of this and spending whatever it takes and seeing some direct benefit with ROI. I guess from the top, you don't feel that much pressure because there is always the incentive to do the right thing and make sure you do it well. I think, you know, our overall philosophy from a team perspective is that community is brand building and that these types of things that you can do important things that really make a difference. And it may be for many of these people that they will never come to a game. They won't step foot in the arena. They couldn't name our coach. They don't know the name of a single one of our players, but they're still really, really glad that the Clippers are in their hometown, and that's really what we're going for. Obviously. You came to pro basketball after many years at Fontana Auto Club Speedway, uh, and give me your comparison of the skills and experience, similarities, differences. How did that nine years prepare you for these four? 
you know, in so many ways. And I think probably the biggest one is the experience of, you know, from the very beginning, um, building and uh, and opening of the Kansas Speedway. Um, that that project has really served me well over the past say, year and a half or so as uh, we've been exploring building a new arena in the city of Inglewood. Um, and having had the experience of gone, having gone through that process, so many things of what I've seen there uh, we're experiencing again. But if I also took all of the operations experience in running events of the magnitude of, of these NASCAR races um, and being able to really think about how those operations work as you're able to build an arena from scratch and worry about the things that, you know, I think many times get looked at after the fact as opposed to from the very beginning. You know, what, what is the flow of trash as you're constructing the facility so that you can be sure that it doesn't cross over the areas where fans will be interacting. Um, they seem like they're small things, but I think they end up being very big, and it gives me a lot of confidence that ultimately we are going to end up with this magical place that Steve envisions, the, the best basketball facility anywhere in the world. Next in line. Next in line. So, yeah. <laughs> we can't wait. <laughs> yeah, I understand. As the new school year begins, obviously you are a mentor and an inspiration to other women. What advice would you give to young women considering a career in sports? You know, it, it's funny. I, I um, am asked this type of question a lot, and I've, I've come to embrace it more and more, particularly over the course of the past year as we've developed our relationship with Bumble. It's really talked about um, female empowerment and this idea that there are so many women who are their own worst enemies, that they, they sort of look out at something and say, wow, you know, I would, I would love to do that, but somehow they don't believe they're capable of doing it. And, you know, what, what I think is important, especially for young people, is to, to have those dreams, but part of those dreams should be, and I am capable. I can do this. Yep. And they should look up to you to do that. And I guess the final really important question for you is you graduate Hamilton College uh, in New York, and what is someone who has a degree in creative writing and religious studies doing running one of the foremost sports properties in the world? How did that happen? <laughs> you know, uh, Rick, I am a huge proponent of a liberal arts education. I think that, um, you know, you're looking at kids who are 17, 18 years old, and you ask them to make a decision about what they want to do for the rest of their lives. And the idea that they would know that answer at that age, I think, is just unfair. Um, but a liberal arts education gives you the foundation to really know who you are and to learn skills that can translate into almost any field. If you can learn to speak well, to write well, to think well, to be able to create a convincing argument, these are the types of things that a liberal arts education provides, and it really gives you the opportunity to do absolutely anything in your future. So unless you're very specific about the idea that you, know, you have something that you're so passionate about, that's your dream, I feel like a liberal arts education is really the best way to go. And you clearly took it to a level that is beneficial for the city of Los Angeles, the NBA, the Lakers, and everybody else. Gillian Zucker, wonderful speaking with you. Rick Harrow, speak with you soon. So Gillian has, has a lot to say in a lot of different ways. Dan, what do you think? I think... Uh telling is the the two or three words depending on how you look at it that she didn't say uh for los angeles which was lebron james i was in la a couple of weeks ago 
everything is is LeBron James. The Lakers, um, this is their bid to own that town again for another generation of fans. And, you know, Ballmer has been a great owner. The Clippers have had competitive teams, um, not as competitive as maybe they wished. Uh, but this is going to be a real street fight uh, for the hearts and minds of L.A. basketball fans um, or the undecideds or to keep the Clipper fans in the fold. And I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think some of her thoughts on philanthropy were interesting um, and some of, uh, you know, her ideas about looking at her brand both locally, nationally, and internationally. That's a real reality for sports executives right now, too. So that, to me, she's very much of the moment and managing a big market um, a big market franchise that's under siege from a different, from a few different places. Yeah. And, and when you think about LA specifically, and, you know, regardless of the players, uh, she typifies what's happening in LA. She's on the board of the LA sports council, the LA sports entertainment commission, but they'll be very involved in the Olympic effort that Casey Wasserman is chairing for 2028 uh, and all the sports teams will, not just the new stadium that is the Rams and and uh, and Chargers, but it'll be a major facility. But all of L.A. realizes that it's the epicenter of the world for uh, that time 10 years from now. But you got to have a competitive team if you're a team owner or executive to play in that space between now and then, because you may have a team that everybody will have forgotten if you wait for 10 years. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think the Olympics notwithstanding, I mean, if you're in a big market, you have to be competitive. I mean, you know, not to denigrate the Chicago White Sox, but they're the Chicago White Sox. And, and you, you want to be the Cubs in any market. You know, you want to be the Yankees. And right now in basketball, you know, it's tough to get around a franchise with its storied history and such a compelling modern day story um, as the Lakers. And that's, uh, you know, that's that's going to be tough. But I do think but I do think to go back to her point about the the local, national, international footprint of a franchise, you know, that idea that you can get a great player from somewhere else and instantly graft your franchise onto that market like the Rockets did with Yao Ming um, or, or other teams in Latin America do with some of the Latin American players or some of the European stars. Like you have fan bases that emerge in places you would have never guessed. So any franchise is one or two great overseas players away from having a, a, a presence and a footprint in some other markets that can be quite lucrative. The byproduct of the globalization of the NBA, to be sure. So I'll put you on the spot. You mentioned all of those cities. And, of course, the Milwaukee Bucks are appealing to Athens and Greece because of their superstar who's named? We can't pronounce. <laughs> the Greek the freak. Greek How's freak. That? Is yeah. that good? Much better. Giannis. I can say Giannis. Yeah. I can say that, right? Giannis. Yeah, you can yeah. say Giannis. Yeah, that, that, that's about it. But, no, you know, and Gillian's right. It's not just the L.A. market, by the way, but it is, it is the, the, the size of the market is important in other sports, but in a global sport like the NBA, you promote the byproduct of all of the NBA to whatever country you're talking about. And it's, 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 it's relatively insignificant that that superstar happens to be playing in, in Memphis or Oklahoma right. city or Milwaukee or anywhere else. Yeah. It's interesting. So, you know, you made a comment about the white Sox and then the Cubs. Let me segue. I'm, I'm here at the baseball winter meetings and we're not going to talk about you know, who signs Harper or Machado. Not? Because uh, I'd this, love to talk about who well, signs well, Harper and Machado. By the time 
uh, our 100 million people listen to this podcast, we'll know which teams were lucky enough to get both of them. But, you know, the 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 ambiance of this place is just absolutely amazing. It's the Mandalay Bay. You, you know, they had a, a, a major tragedy last year. They've rebounded the Mandalay Bay itself this week, the World Rodeo. Uh, the esports conference I talked about, and 6,000 people at the winter meetings. It's a mini city. Wow. And of course, you don't go out of here. You stay at the casino. And what happens at the winter meetings is that people follow Scott Boris, the agent of, 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 uh, of Harper and others around like a pack because they want to manufacture news. All of the big teams like the Cubs and the Dodgers and, and, and even the Phillies because they're trying to make a big score. They all hide out. Uh, but the uh, the media has figured out how to use the keys to get off at certain floors where you're not supposed to. So they bank down doors. They follow people around. And it's, you know, v- Vegas is known for um, having uh, certain people be followed around in the middle of the evening, let's just say. This now happens with baseball agents. In broad I find daylight. That in broad daylight. In, bro- in um, broad daylight you know, with I, everybody I, following. I would say I, I would just take take offense for a second to your term of manufacturing news that's actually called reporting um so they're not trying to manufacture news they're trying to find out where the guy who controls the most promising free agent on the market is who he's talking to so they're not manufacturing but yes it is you know it just shows and again it goes almost to 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 the what we were talking about in the nba like you have to have an identity to to dominate a market right and you don't have to, you know, the Mets prospered in New York for a long time as lovable losers. And that was it. That was that team's identity. And they would win from time to time. But by and large, that was their identity. Like when you're looking at Manny Machado or Bryce Harper or, you know, uh, other type of acquisitions, you are trying to say, this is our identity. We're the star studded Los Angeles Dodgers. We're the go for broke Philadelphia Phillies. Whatever the, you know, uh, whatever you're trying to do, the players are more than their performance on the field, and it really goes to you know. You and I were talking before the broadcast. I feel like it's more product development <laughs> than it is um, performance. You know, you're trying to create that identity for your product that gets that gets you on the attention graph where you need to be uh, across social live events. And, and, and earn media. And I think that's kind of where you're, you're, you're seeing the value, you know, change. I get angry as a fan when you spend too much on a relief pitcher who doesn't pan out. But quite frankly, you know, the Wilpons may not care because they have a bigger, they're playing a different game than, you know, than their fans. So it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic to see the value of money and the value of players in regard to where certain franchises are. I'll tell you what else it is, too, which is kind of interesting. And I've just realized that after spending three days here, it's a marketing move, because if you remember, a lion's share of new season tickets uh, occurs around the holiday seasons for baseball. Uh, A lot of uh, people will renew or not renew at the end of the last season based on performance. But this is a time where everybody tries to get a real solid footing for the next season. How do you do it? We make a splash. And even if you can't sign Manny Machado because everybody can't, you better look like you're in the market to produce a good team because you don't want the core of your fans giving up on you in December when they're thinking about making purchases, gift or otherwise. And I think that's what motivates a lot of people here. I, I think sports owners and franchises have a, a built-in advantage in that I'm never really leaving. You know, I'll always be around. I'll always buy the hat. I'll always go to a few games, and, and most fans are like that. It's, it's the, 
you know, the it's the it's the the revenue you get from TV and the prospect of becoming uh, a permanent, you know, part of the foundation, like the Cowboys, like the core franchises in the NFL or the Yankees, Dodgers, um, whoever else in, in the major leagues, the Red Sox, Yankees, Dodgers, Cubs in the major leagues. Like you want to be in that club. Golden State has done it really, really well. Um, you know, the Red Wings have redone it in in the NHL really, really well. But the, again, these winter meetings and these exercises in obtaining talent and investing in talent um, really do serve multiple purposes. And I think that's why the winter meetings have gotten so so interesting in the sense that these are now, it is like almost having a venture capital conference out in public, you know, and you have a bunch of companies running around and another bunch of investors running after them. And, and that seems to be, to, to me, kind of the interesting part. With a, a, a add-on to that, which is you have two or 3,000 screaming fans who get into this hotel one way or another who are running around trying to get autographs. Um, and as long as that happens, it is a testament to the avidity of baseball. I was even asked uh, for an autograph yesterday, which I uh, uh, gave, but of course I did charged. They think you were, so did I think they, you would appreciate Did they think you were Kent to Colby? They they thought from the behind that looked a little like Cal Ripken, but then when I turned around, they, they were just. I would have thought so, so you know no, I would have thought you cut the figure of a of of a slightly older brother of Giancarlo Stanton. Slightly yeah. older, <laughs> yeah, slightly older. On that note, I'm going back to manufacturing news or reporting news, whichever one it is. See everybody later. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. Our producer Alex Cohen, associate producer Freddie Joiner, assistance provided by Carlos Swadek. Tanner Simpkins, Jesse Leeds, and Jamie Swimmer. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso. I'm Ricardo. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.